Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions, and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include GameStop and antitrust policy. We begin with five speakers who will discuss the crazy equity trading in GameStop. Our first speaker today is David Braille, who is the founder of the hedge fund Braille Capital Management, which focuses on long-short equity strategies and special situations. I have invested in David's various hedge funds for the past 30 years because of his clever financial acumen. Today, we will hear from David about how social media outlets like Reddit and retail brokerage firms like Robinhood led to the volatility in GameStop stock. Our second speaker is Giulio DiPietro, who was formerly a partner and head of equity derivatives with the hedge fund Citadel. I met Giulio 22 years ago when we worked together at Citadel. Giulio will explain why the high short interest in GameStop made the short sellers vulnerable to an attack. Julio will also describe how retail investors' purchase of call options increased GameStop stock volatility because of the options market makers' hedging strategies. Our third speaker today on this panel is my friend Larry Goodman. Larry and I worked together at Salomon Brothers when he was an emerging market economist. Larry has since founded the Center for Financial Stability, which is an independent think tank that focuses exclusively on financial markets. Larry will discuss how the Fed's aggressive monetary policy has injected liquidity into the equity markets, creating bubbles, which form like GameStop. He expects that these sort of market dislocations might result in regulatory policy actions that will be damaging to price discovery in the stock market. Our fourth speaker is Randy Cohen, a finance professor at Harvard Business School. Randy questions whether retail was the chief culprit for the GameStop volatility, and he will argue that the winners and losers were likely larger institutional investors. Up fifth, and our final speaker in the GameStop panel is Marcy Engel. I met Marcy 34 years ago at Solomon Brothers, where she was the general counsel for our trading department. Marcy subsequently became chief operating officer and general counsel for the hedge fund Eden Park. I've asked Marcy to discuss the regulations that apply to this GameStop saga and if any laws have been broken. What happens next then moves in a completely different direction to discuss antitrust. There seems to be a growing consensus among outgoing Trump officials and the incoming Biden administration that there should be material changes in antitrust laws. Senator Klobuchar has proposed legislation that would alter the burden of proof for the government in its litigation with acquirers. The Democrats oppose larger firms and reduce competition, while the Republicans fear big tech, especially when big tech uses its power to censor conservative speech and support progressive ideas and politicians. Our first speaker on the antitrust panel is Fiona Scott Morton, who is a professor at the Yale School of Management and previously served in the Obama administration's antitrust division. Fiona will discuss the role of economic analysis in antitrust. Our second speaker in this panel is my college roommate from the University of Pennsylvania, Josh Sovin, who is a law partner with Wilson Sonsini. One recent theme in antitrust is the public disapproval of large corporations. Josh will discuss the challenges he faces in representing large firms in antitrust matters that grow organically or by acquisition. Our final speaker today is Doug Malamud, who is a professor at Stanford Law School. Doug will discuss what's next for antitrust doctrine and policy.
All right. That is the agenda for today's session. I now turn over the call to our first speaker, David Braille. Go ahead, David. Thanks, Larry. <clears throat> GameStop is the crescendo of an extraordinary period for stocks since the COVID pandemic took hold. What began as a panicked 35% crash quickly gave way to a frenzied rally as many companies like Zoom, Netflix, Peloton, and Amazon benefited mightily from the pandemic. With time on their hands and cash in their pockets, many new investors became interested in the stock market for the first time. This group was young, well-versed in video gaming and gambling, and comfortable with technology. A large community of like-minded traders emerged on the subreddit Wall Street Bets and a new brokerage firm called Robinhood, which offered a very slick, gamified app and charged zero commissions. David Portnoy, who founded Barstool Sports and who masterfully built a high profile in social media, brought together the world of sports betting and stock trading. After a few weeks of successful day trading, Portnoy unveiled the mantra that summed up the second half of 2020, stocks only go up. Everyone was happy. The new traders were making money. Robinhood was building an enviable business, and the Reddit boards were helping new traders learn the ropes of stock market investing and the emergence of vaccines and the economy's resilience provided a tailwind to their portfolios. These new investors know what they are doing. They're, there are many well-reasoned bullish analysis on Wall Street bets, and they understand and are enthusiastic about call options. They are comfortable with risk and speculation and are accepting of losses when the trades don't work out. The subreddit had 8 million members and provided a welcoming community to newcomers. They steeled each other to commit to hold these speculative trades. At times, it looks like a cult. Then they discovered GameStop. GameStop is a slowly failing mall and shopping center-based video game retailer. But as Internet downloads replaced physical cartridges, there was less reason to visit the stores. They were, in technical terms, circling the drain. Hope arrived in Ryan Cohen, who had built this pet supplies company, Chewy. He bought 10% of GameStop stock and fought his way onto the board with fresh ideas to move GameStop's business online and other initiatives. The stock had rallied from around 5 to 15 on Cohen's vision. Some remained skeptical and bet against the company's renaissance by shorting the stock, thinking the shares would decline to five or lower. They borrowed shares from somebody long the stock and sold those shares in the market short, hoping to buy back the shares at a lower price, return the borrowed shares, and profit from the decline. This happens every day in almost every stock. There are always optimistic long investors and pessimistic short sellers. What made GameStop unique was that every available share was borrowed and sold short. Then many of the new buyers of these borrowed shares lent out their shares. This led to the anomaly of 140% of GameStop's float being sold short. Melvin Capital is a $13 billion hedge fund. They shorted GameStop heavily, despite GameStop having only a $500 million market value. This meant Melvin needed to be short a lot of GameStop for the possible profits to matter to a fund their size. Investors must disclose their long positions quarterly, but not their shorts. A weird twist to SEC disclosure rules is that you must disclose long put positions. This tipped the Wall Street bets crowd that Melvin was heavily short. Melvin quickly became the villain as they stood against the bullish thesis. 
targeting Melvin, and uh, the Redditors managed to incite an epic short squeeze, driving the stock from the teens to almost $500 a share, causing a 53% loss to Melvin and requiring Melvin to seek a bailout from Citadel and Steve Cohen. This led to a contagion in less, uh, of lesser but still spectacular squeezes in AMC Entertainment, BlackBerry, Bed Bath & Beyond, and others. The strategy was simple and elegant. They bought out-of-the-money calls, which gave them the right, but not the obligation, to buy GameStop at $40, $50, and $60 a share for several months. With the stock in the teens, this right only cost a few cents per share, but allowed them to potentially control many, many shares if the stock price exceeded those levels. Then they bought the common stock and relentlessly promoted it to each other. As hundreds of thousands of Robinhood accounts all bought GameStop, the shares moved higher. As those call options now became in the money, the options dealers had to buy increasing amounts of stock to remain hedged, adding to the frenzy. The shorts could not sell more. They, too, had to buy simply to prevent ruin. The Redditors mistakenly believed it was not possible to have 140% sold short, that it was a game of musical chairs, and 40% would be unable to find shares to buy, causing the stock to rally endlessly. This was wrong, but it didn't matter. They drove the price to unimaginable levels. While exhorting each other to hold, of course not all did. The most prominent of them, named Roaring Kitty, sold $13 million worth of stock on his initial $50,000 investment. However, not all could sell, and the stock once again became borrowable. New short sellers emerged, and within eight days, the stock lost 90% of its value, leading to a lot of new investors receiving a hard lesson in stock speculation. Robinhood became a villain. In the midst of the short squeeze, they prevented customers from buying more. Turns out this was an act of self-preservation, as the thinly capitalized broker was unable to meet capital calls to the central clearinghouse on pending trades. Citadel became a villain. Not only did their hedge fund bail out the biggest villain, Melvin Capital, but the zero commission deal comes at the cost of Robinhood's orders being sold to Citadel for execution. Since Robinhood doesn't charge a commission, this revenue stream is critical. Small retailer traders are better off paying zero commission in exchange for having their orders sold to Citadel, but this would not be the week to try to explain that to a bag holder. The Robinhood crowd is a threat to the investment establishment. With, while mostly self-taught and unschooled in traditional investment research, they outperformed the pros. But because their strategies have more in common with sports betting than Graham and Dodd-style investment research, they are viewed as apostates and mere speculators. And with the collapse of the short squeeze, the Wall Street establishment feels vindicated. Politically, this is just bad, very bad. The upcoming congressional hearings will be a nightmare as uninformed politicians try to twist those facts they find convenient into their preferred narratives. And there are lots of narratives to craft here. A David versus Goliath populist revolt, the dangerous gamification of the serious business of investing, the unfairness of Robin Hood prohibiting further buying to aid Citadel in the hedge funds caught in the squeeze, Citadel's massive riskless profits gorging on the immense order flow sold to them by Robin Hood and many others. I looked on in horror last week as Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Elizabeth Warren, and Ted Cruz all found common philosophical ground in attacking Robin Hood.
Very bad policy ideas like a transaction tax may rise from the grave, as well as more paternalistic interference in the markets by politicians and regulators. Stay tuned. Thanks, uh, David. All right, so we're going to wait until everyone is finished to go to the panel discussion. Um, So our next speaker is Giulio DiPietro. Giulio, can you go ahead? Great. Thanks, Larry. It is difficult to overstate the magnitude of the shockwaves that the GameStop short squeeze was causing on Wall Street just two short weeks ago when Larry asked me to speak on the topic. Seemingly overnight, the struggling brick-and-mortar video game retailer had catapulted into mass cultural consciousness with startling velocity, even featuring prominently in the cold open on Saturday Night Live the night before. But in keeping with the speed of information flow and attention spans in the digital age, the GameStop phenomenon has already largely subsided, with several other similarly ill-fated manias in cannabis stocks and silver, to name just two, already having boomed and busted in the interim. And while all this might have seemed very familiar and even predictable to many grizzled Wall Street investors who had seen similar meteoric rises and crashes over the years, I believe that the what, the why, and the how in this story all represent something new in the world of finance, and I suspect will have profound effects on the investing landscape for years to come. So what exactly happened and why did it happen when it did? The kernel of the idea of the GameStop trade was intelligent, sophisticated, and dovetailed perfectly with the pervading cultural zeitgeist in late 2020 of distrust of institutions and belief in a system rigged against the little guy. Evil hedge funds, so the narrative went, had conspired to short over 130% of GameStop shares outstanding with the intent to drive this beloved company so central in our collective nostalgia into the ground. This not only sounds nefarious on its face, but lends itself to the readily grasped idea of a crowd short crowdsourced short squeeze. The Reddit subthreads had a field day. If we all join forces and buy and hold and never ever sell or diamond hands as the rallying cries went, then ultimately these funds will have to cover their shorts at increasingly higher prices and then we win. And even more importantly, then they lose. The schadenfreude here was real. At some level, this is just classic eat the rich pitchfork capitalism, but on digital steroids amplified by a global pandemic that had just created millions of homebound day traders worldwide and powered by a new free mobile trading app with a video game interface and slot machine level addiction and maintained by a genuine sense of community, which entertained itself with inside jokes, hero worship, and funny videos, all promoting the buy and hodl mantra. Some of these went viral, which served to recruit and galvanize more and more soldiers to the cause. Not to mention the very real prospect of getting rich themselves in the process. From the hedge fund's perspective, by late January, the barbarians were well and truly at the gates, and this time they had brought memes. But these were not your run-of-the-mill financial barbarians using traditional siege tactics to storm the castle and capture the treasure. These were more akin to an army of white walkers to whom the castle and its treasure were largely irrelevant. Their true goal was to destroy the status quo of the financial world. This excerpt from a widely shared Reddit thread during the heat of the frenzy entitled, GameStop and financial culture capture the sentiment perfectly. Quote, it is the first time that the financial market is being used against the same monsters who bet on the failures of companies and enjoy manipulating the markets and impoverishing investors. And maybe the most novel part of all was that for a few weeks at least, the little guys were actually winning and crushing the hedge funds at their own game. At the peak of the squeeze, with GameStop having gone all the way from $5 to nearly $500 per share, and $25 billion in market value, some of the biggest names in the hedge fund world had lost billions and were teetering on the edge of collapse. 
So when the Robinhood platform, which had been the engine behind this retail revolution, suddenly prevented their users from buying GameStop and other stocks that were at the heart of it all, the outrage was extreme and I think completely understandable. And then when the people learned that one of the hedge funds at the heart of the squeeze was also one of Robinhood's biggest paying customers, the conspiracy theorists went wild and the betrayal was complete. So how exactly did this happen? How did this particular squeeze reach such an extreme level, bringing multiple decabillion dollar funds close to the brink and causing some of the biggest banks on Wall Street to warn, warn of a looming domino effect that could destabilize global markets? This army of day traders, and almost certainly some much larger institutions as well, who had sniffed out the pending disaster, had weaponized a relatively new weapon of financial mass destruction, the Gamma Squeeze. To go back to the Game of Thrones analogy, if the Robin Hooders and Reddit Army were the White Walkers, then the Gamma Squeeze was the zombie dragon that no one saw coming, and that they unleashed to finally burn down the wall. So what is the Gamma Squeeze? These traders were buying the farthest out-of-the-money calls on these stocks in vast quantities. This gave them both maximum leverage in terms of the number of shares they could ultimately own and also create a second-order effect which, pro which proved devastating to the short sellers and market makers who got caught selling these options too early. How is that? Well, when you buy a call option in the open market, the seller of the option, almost always a computer algorithm these days, typically buys a certain amount of that underlying stock as a way to hedge their new position. But if the stock rises, this standard risk management process causes those market-making algorithms to buy more and more stock at higher and higher prices just to hedge their rapidly increasing short exposure in what becomes a nightmarish, vicious circle for them, or a magical, virtuous circle if you're on the other side of that wall. At the peak of the GameStop frenzy, tens of thousands of the farthest out-of-the-money call options representing millions of shares of short exposure were being bought daily in an explicit attempt to drive the stock price higher. This strategy had been wildly effective in previous weeks, and I believe it's worth considering what might have happened if this saga had continued for even a few more days. The billions of dollars that had been lost already on the short side could have been orders of magnitude greater. And the second order dislocations may well have been catastrophic for multiple market participants, if not the stock market overall. So what happens next? I'll happily punt the many legal and regulatory questions for now, other uh, speakers on this call, but the implications for hedge funds also are very profound. From a risk management perspective, how can you justify being short of stock that could go up 1,000% in your face on account of a wicked awesome meme that some guy put together in his basement the night before? And how can you risk manage on the short side against an army of traders publicly posting and bragging about how much they are paying for a stock that you might be short? And finally, I'm sure there is a much smaller army of recent Ivy League grads at hedge funds who are at home right now trying to figure out how to profit from all of this as we seek. Thank you. Thanks, Julio. Um, our next speaker is Larry Goodman. Uh, Larry is the founder of the Center for Financial Stability, and he's going to talk about uh, bubbles. Go ahead, Larry. Uh, good afternoon, and thanks to Larry for hosting a series of superb What Happens Next discussions over the last several months. Look, events surrounding GameStop and Robinhood extend well beyond the immediate stories and headlines. They signal future issues that financial market participants are destined to confront and regulators are eager to confront. There are big stories here, right? They stretch from financial market manias to regulatory policy to new technologies to the struggles between good and bad, and the struggles between the big and little. 
Based on these many fascinating vectors, a team of seven experts from the Center for Financial Stability wrote a multidisciplinary paper on Robinhood and GameStop. The paper stretches from finance to law to technology to education to public policy recommendations. Today, I will focus briefly on two issues. First, broad implications for financial markets. It's a bubble, and why? And second, public policy, regulatory risks, and what to do. First, financial bubbles are flourishing. The GameStop Robin Hood saga simply adds further evidence to this perspective. Quite simply, there would be no GameStop story without retail momentum traders. And there would be no retail momentum traders without easy or near free money. The fundamental underpinnings to this facet of the story are not new, right? It's the combination of easy money and a new technology. Charles Kindleberger and Bob Alibur's famous manias, panics, and crashes has an entire chapter devoted to fueling the flames, monetary expansion. In seven editions of this book, this chapter has changed very little over the years. The only real substantial change is Bob's emphasis on credit in addition to money. So where are we today? Today, the risk-free cost of credit is near zero, and central bank liquidity injections are massive. For instance, the cumulative injection of base money by the Federal Reserve in the last 13 years is 600%. This dwarfs anything witnessed since the founding of the Fed. In fact, the cumulative expansion is 200% more than what was needed to rescue the economy from a Great Depression and to fight a world war ending in 1945. So there's a lot of free money sloshing around for day traders and momentum investors to fuel their activities. For investors and officials, we need to recognize that it's the quantities that matter. Quantities are fueling speculative retail behavior, equity indices, FX rates, and credit markets. We are no longer in an interest rate world. At CFS, we've developed and studied a range of quantities that measure liabilities in the financial system. These measures have been helpful at charting market moves and economic behavior patterns. Here, base money injections have and will continue to drive asset prices. But now, we're beginning to see a seepage of these policies into the economy and goods prices. Our broadest measure of money, we call CFS Divisia M4, has grown on average by 22% on a year-to-year basis since April of 2020, and most recently it's at 29% versus 3.4% on average since the global financial crisis in 2008. This matters. This matters. As a sustained move towards higher inflation could mark the turning point in this seemingly endless bubble that has been so nicely illustrated by the recent Robin Hood and GameStop story. So what are the regulators to do? To be sure, regulation is essential, especially regulation that creates incentives for actors to behave prudently. Yet often, after financial crises or episodes of discomfort, 
the risk of regulatory overreach is high. Many come swooping in after the fact to explain what happened and create constructs to prevent the reoccurrence of previous problems. The call to, for action today is strong. Ahead of the hearing this Thursday, Chair of the House Financial Services Committee, Maxine Waters, is using terms such as predatory short-selling, vulture strategies, and unethical conduct. The case of short-selling is especially interesting. Most economists agree. Short-sellers are not necessarily the enemy, but are often the friends of retail investors. Firms that engage in short-selling have an incentive to uncover and or disclose fraud at an issuer, and those firms bear heavy risks as prices can rise without limit and short-sellers can lose an unlimited amount. Regulatory action that drives them from the market can be expected to have a materially adverse effect on the incentive to gather negative information, such as the kind that can be used to expose fraud, and limit two-way flow. The deepest of ironies is that not so long ago, after the global financial crisis, the big heroes were the big shorts or short sellers. So regulators should thoughtfully ask and answer questions regarding lessons from GameStop and Robinhood for financial stability. Many of these questions are posed and answered in our paper. I'll, I'll conclude briefly with three. Are short sellers the real problem? Can new technologies improve both surveillance by the SEC and settlement times? And lastly, most importantly, how is abundant monetary liquidity impacting regulated markets and institutions? In fact, since the release of our paper, steps in the official sector are already moving forward here. I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Larry. Uh, our next speaker comes from Harvard Business School, Randy Cohen. Go ahead, Randy. Great. So uh, I want to talk about what happened, and then I want to talk about what it means and, and what, uh, if anything, we should do. Um, I think the media really got missed a huge chunk of the story, maybe the main chunk of the story. I certainly understand their focus on Robinhood and retail investors and Reddit. It's a very uh, alluring tale. Um, but I think it's a bit of a sideshow. It, it, it's not that it played no role, but look, we know that this was essentially institution on institution violence. And what I mean by that is the people who pushed the price up to the staggering levels in GameStop that caused the short sellers to be forced to buy to cover at, at, at the huge prices and, and, uh, and get wiped out. Uh, were other institutions. I'm not going to say hedge funds because people just refer to institutional investors as hedge funds when they want to view them negatively for some reason, uh, but the point is institutional investors as, as a category. And we know that because what's the point of Robinhood? How does Robinhood have a business? Well, as was explained earlier, what Robinhood does is it sells its order flow to firms like Citadel and other market makers, um, and that's how they're able to make money without charging commissions. Why would anybody pay for their order flow? Because the order flow of Robinhood Robinhood investors is viewed by Wall Street as uninformative, right? When you take an order and you take the other side of it, you're worried the guy you're trading against knows something that you don't know and you're getting taken advantage of. You're getting picked off, as the Wall Streeters say, right? But with, when you get a bunch of orders from retail investors, you're not too worried that they're experts who are picking you off. 
right? The result of this is that retail investors don't move stock prices very much because, again, the whole point of paying to get that retail flow is that you know that it's not very informative, that you don't have to move the price in response to it. And that's on top of the fact that retail investors are just a way smaller piece of the market than they used to be. So who was pushing the price up to 200 300 400 almost $500? That was institutions. Now, why does this matter? Well, here's the thing. If a bunch of big institutional investors, hedge funds, uh, long funds, whatever it might be, call each other on the phone and say, hey, you know what? There's a couple of guys who are short a huge amount of GameStop. Let's all buy, 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 and push the price so high that they're forced to buy to cover, and we can sell to them at the higher price and make money. Well, I'm not an attorney, but my impression, and Marcy can help us out here, is that that would not be legal. My understanding is they passed rules back in the 1930s against rings and other things that make it illegal to do that, right? So they're not allowed to make that call and have that conversation. Okay, so what role did the Redditors and the, and, the, and, the, and the Robinhooders play if they weren't the ones primarily driving prices up? Well, if you need, if it's medieval Europe and you need all the troops to gather at one point and they don't know when to gather and you don't have telephones, you light a signal fire, right? You light a signal fire on the hilltop and everybody's, aha, tonight's the night that we get together for the invasion or whatever it might be, right? So that's what the Redditors did. They lit the signal fire. The, the hedge funds and other institutional investors, they didn't need to call each other to make a plan that would have been, you know, skirting the law or would have been illegal. Or they just all read in the Wall Street Journal, oh, looks like there's a short squeeze potential in this stock. So then they all were able to jump in, okay? So I think that is the main story of what's happening. And I think when the data eventually becomes available, of course it's true that if you were the first person on this train on Reddit, you know, you, you made a lot of money, right? 50000 into $13 million or whatever. That's amazing, okay? But tip, the retail investors, some of them bought in early and got out. So a lot of them bought in late and lost money. You're not going to see a ton of importance to the retail investors. This was really a story about institutions uh, making money off other institutions, right? So... Uh, what do we do with that information? How, how do we view this? Is this something that was just like an amusing answer? Well, look, I will say one good thing came out of this. Uh, for the first time in their lives, my teenage kids came to me and wanted to talk about the stock market. So that was kind of great. So if we could have one of these a decade or so just to get interest in the stock market, look, let's face it, stock, you know, people say good investing is like watching paint dry, right? And one thing we know about teenagers is they don't like watching paint dry. <laughs> so uh, you can argue that um, getting something that's a little bit gamified, a little bit gambling-like, a little bit exciting, uh, that there may even be some value in that. But if it happens over and over and over, and by the way, I've got uh, in my entrepreneurship class at HBS, I have two teams of students right now who are trying to create gamified versions of stock market investing where things go up and down faster and you're betting on your stocks and other things to make the whole thing uh, more exciting. So there's interest and money in that idea, okay? But I do think that there is potentially real cost to society when you push all this additional volatility into the market. And then some of the previous speakers, I think, have done a good job sort of articulating uh, these issues. Okay, so, so if you make markets more volatile, then as an investor, it's a much riskier decision. If you want to put money in markets, you know you're going to have more ups and downs, and that means you need a higher compensation. But the, um, the profits of the companies and their dividends aren't going to be any higher. So if you're going to bear more risk and you demand a, better, a higher return for that, it means lower prices on everything and a higher cost of capital for companies. And that means great, exciting projects get shelved instead of getting done because it's too costly to fund them. So there, I think, is a real cost to society to things that increase volatility. Now, is that going to happen? Well, what I'd say is if there aren't uh, 
100,000 folks out there asking themselves, hey, could I get one of these going? Do I have enough influence online to make this happen? And, the more, and, and frankly, if they understand that it's not all about the retail people, that the retail folks just like the signal fire, and then the troops are the Wall Streeters, uh, that, that makes it even easier. And I'll point out, it doesn't have to be the Wall Street Vets group or any kind of stock group. It could be any affinity group, right? The most obvious is the political people, the woke folks or the, or the MAGA people. But frankly, it could be Red Sox Nation. It could be the people who love keeping up with the Kardashians and follow Tim online. He's got like 50 million Right? You could imagine lots of different ways that groups of people could gather and start pushing something. And, and it just takes one person saying, hmm, if I could turn 50,000 into 13 million, I'll spend the 50,000. I'll try to get things going. If you can get enough attention, then maybe Wall Street wakes up and says, hey, here's another opportunity for us to make money. So I think there is legitimate risk of that happening and becoming commonplace. But we don't know uh, that it's going to happen. Now, as I mentioned, it, if it does, one cost would be this volatility issue, which is costly for everybody. The other is the attack on short sellers, which I think Larry Goodman did such a great job laying out, so I don't need to say much about it. We know two things about short sellers. One is people hate them, and the second is they actually hugely benefit markets. One of the some things that often surprises people to discover is not only do short sellers make markets more accurate. And I want to point out, that's really important. If, if, you're, if you're involved in Wall Street, as, as all of us on the panel are, and as probably most people listening to this are, um, if you want to feel that your life is not just about getting and spending, but that you're actually playing an important role in the economy, which I do, then you have to believe that getting prices right in markets matters for capital allocation and for building the economy. And so if people are doing things that are pushing prices to weird random places, uh, that really is costly for the economy. Short sellers do a great job at helping make prices more accurate. But here's the thing that often surprises people. It's not just that they make prices more accurate. They make them higher. Right? When they've studied cross countries and in places where short selling is legal, stocks trade at higher multiples and have you know, sort of higher valuations conditional on other factors because people coming into the market know that the bad information has probably already been discovered instead of fearing that it's being kept secret because no one can make money off knowing bad information. Right? So I do think it's very costly for a society to attack to make short selling a less attractive and more difficult thing. And anybody who's making them the villain to this story, I think, is adding uh, to that damage. Okay? So, um, so, so putting it all together, the question is, what do we do? And my instinct on this, and this just may be my lack of expertise shining through it, probably nothing right now, because if this was kind of a one-off fluke, or maybe not one because of AMC and silver and so forth, but, but basically a one-off short-term fluke, then you know, legislating or regulating in response to a weird one-off fluke is often a big mistake, right? So um, I'm eager to hear in a moment from Marcy to hear what she has to say about A, what the regulations that currently exist in law say about this stuff, and B, how they might be applied to future situations. I will say that if this were a regular occurrence in the market, it would be damaging enough that uh, I would feel like we should, we should think about actions we could take uh, that, would have, that would have an impact. Um, so um, I think I should wrap it up there and, and hand it off to Marcy. Thank you, Randy. Uh, Marcy, why don't you go ahead? Great. Well, thanks, Larry. And it's great to be uh, participating in this wonderful show that you've been having for almost a year now. <laughs> so let me jump right in. As this already indicated, we've all watched the GameStop stock that it went, as it went crazy over the course of a few weeks in January, and everybody who just spoke did a great job of laying out what happened and the market impact. I want to address a few of the questions that everyone was asking and try to offer some preliminary answers. First, was anything that happened illegal? And if so, who acted illegally? Was this a planned and coordinated attempt by a disaffected group of people using social media to stick it to rich hedge funds by forcing a short squeeze? 
or just a group of people who saw a get-rich-quick scheme and wanted to jump in and have some fun. Was the use of power or an abuse of power? Did anybody actually act illegally? The easy non-answer answer is we don't know. What do all the chats, comments, WhatsApps, and other communications say? It will end up being very fact-specific. In my experience, there's always some dumb email someone wrote that can make even innocent activity look illegal. So we'll have to see what comes out. The harder answer is figuring out what actually might be illegal. First, I want to remind everyone that the SEC and the CFTC do not have criminal authority. Any charges they bring are civil and are subject to a lower standard of proof than a criminal proceeding, although those may follow as well. The two main provisions of the securities laws I want to discuss are securities fraud, which includes things like making misleading statements and insider trading, and manipulation. Let's start with an illustration of securities fraud as it could relate to the GameStop situation. If one of the investors communicating on Reddit pumped up the stock, said he or she is buying or holding their position, but was actually instead selling the position, that could very well be a case of securities fraud because it would be making a misleading statement in connection with the purchase or sale of a security. There's a well-known case where the SEC brought charges against Jeffrey Vinnick when he was an influential investor at Fidelity, where he effectively did this the old-fashioned way by going on television. The more interesting issue is whether what took place was manipulation. Surprisingly, manipulation is not clearly defined, although some acts, like wash sales and fictitious trades, are examples given in the law. Manipulation involves transactions made by someone acting alone or with another person that create actual or apparent activity or raise or depress the price of a security for the purpose of inducing the purchase or sale of a security by others. Well, that's a mouthful and it was clearly written by lawyers. Manipulation involves the creation of an artificial price, one that does not reflect true supply and demand or the true value of a stock, whatever that is. It also usually assumes some degree of market influence or power, which any of the investors acting alone wouldn't have. So the claim would probably have to be that the investors acted as a group in some sort of coordinated way to gain that power. But manipulation is usually not done in the open. It assumes a degree of deception. Here, there was no secrecy at all. If, though, the public posts show that there is an agreement among a group of investors to buy and hold their shares to keep the stock price high and squeeze the shorts, it's much closer to the line. If you add in an agreement not to lend the stock, a manipulation case can probably be made. But in either case, proving an agreement among hundreds and thousands of people will be nearly impossible. Another issue that has already been raised in class actions and other civil claims is whether Robinhood acted at the behest of the big hedge funds or other institutional players in the market when it restricted, game, restricted trading in GameStop shares. Robinhood was clearly not capitalized sufficiently for its level of business and the high degree of concentration it had in a few stocks. When the volatility and trading volume through the Robinhood app became overwhelming, the clearinghouse massively increased its collateral requirements. If Robinhood had failed to post the collateral, it could have led to its bankruptcy or a loss of its license. If, as Robinhood claims, it restricted trading because of the increased demands of the clearinghouse, the question becomes whether the risk that Robinhood might have to do so was adequately disclosed to investors. It is worth noting that the restrictions only applied to buying shares and did not prevent selling and reducing risk, raising the question as to what would be the harm or damages in any action against Robinhood. While few would argue that the clearinghouses need to be able to increase collateral requirements in the face of increased volatility and risk, 
the uncertainty and lack of transparency in how this is done, including how the requirements are calculated and the circumstances in which they can be so suddenly raised, clearly undercut investor confidence in the fairness of markets and contribute to the sense that the market is rigged for the big guys. The GameStop saga also raises an interesting question about the suitability requirements that traditional brokers have, since they clearly don't work in the online trading world. But should they? Here, instead of a traditional broker fulfilling that responsibility, it was effectively a transfer to social media. The Wall Street Bets community became the trusted advisor. And it seems like many of these investors thoroughly understood the risk of loss and even reveled in it, adopting YOLO as their mantra. The last issue I'll discuss has already been touched on by others is the practice of payment for order flow. While people are drawn to online brokers for their no commission trading, they may not realize that their broker is selling their order flow to another broker who executes their trades, which might result in worse execution. Just two months ago, in December, Robin had settled an SEC enforcement action paying $65 million for misleading its customers and failing to satisfy its duty of best execution in connection with receiving payment for order flow. While Robinhood has probably now improved its disclosure, there is little chance that investors are scrolling through and reading those disclosures when they open their accounts or understand how Robinhood is profiting off of them. The investigations, lawsuits, and congressional hearings are just beginning. The big question is whether they will result in a rethink on how we regulate in today's world or will they just scapegoat the usual suspects such as hedge funds and short sellers and fail to address the issues we face today and tomorrow? The real risk is that, as was um, just said by Randy, if in fact this kind of activity makes greater volatility and it could, it could really result in the loss of confidence in the market, which could be very damaging. We'll have to see what happens. Thank you. Great. All right, that ends um, our prepared remarks by our five speakers, and we'll go right to Q&A, and I encourage all five of my speakers to join and jump in at any time. Let me start with a question for Marcy, because she just finished. Marcy, uh, this, what it seems to be unusual about this is the role of retail and social media. Uh, you talked about uh, what defined uh, manipulation to some degree, but if, if we find that... Um, what happened was social media started with a bunch of Reddit comments where they were very bullish because of a potential for short squeeze. They went out and bought shares and did not pump and dump. It, uh, they held on for a long period of time. Uh, they were true to what they were saying. Do you see that there's no uh, violation of the current manipulation rules? And is that necessarily problematic? Should the rules change to include something like that? Or is this what we want retail people to do, is to make bets, speak about it publicly, um, and not uh, have uh, old-fashioned collusion in the dark? So, Larry, I'm guessing that was to me. And, of course, yeah. I made the mistake when I took myself on, off mute. I disconnected, and I had to go back in. So I'm the dummy on the call this week. Um, okay. But I think what you're, you're – <laughs> <laughs> and I know there was a good, a good lead up on the on the question, so maybe just give me. I caught the end. If you can just um, yeah. So the the question really is, if retail uh, is using social media and telling the truth um, and encouraging others to buy, is that at all uh, problematic from a legal standpoint? And maybe as a follow up, should it be illegal, or should uh, the public be allowed to discuss openly? Uh, ideas in investing, even if it results in a volatile trading. 
that, that's what that's what research analysts do. That's what people do when they go on CNBC, uh, discussing why you want to buy a stock, why you like a stock, that you're going to buy a stock is completely fine, and I think needs to be because trying to regulate that kind of activity um, would result in effectively people being afraid to say anything. I think the real question on manipulation is whether people get together in a way that is has some degree of deception. It's intended to create an artificial price with the intent to profit off of it by duping somebody else. Manipulation mm -hmm. cases are traditionally really, really hard for the SEC to bring, but the, you know, situation like I mentioned before, a bunch of people really did get together, had the market power, agreed to hold, held their stock, and then ended up, you know, waiting until the squeeze got really bad and then um, profiting from it, sort of along the lines of Solomon Brothers in 1991 or Phil Falcone with his max bonds, then I think you could have a, um, a really strong manipulation case. And Mercy, Randy was suggesting that institutions were joining up uh, once the, the signal had come, the fire was lit on the on the top hill, uh, that there was action to be had. Um, is it different? Are there different criteria in this story for institutions than it would be for small-time uh, retail investors? I don't think there are different criteria. I just think it's a different um, ability to prove it. If you've got three or four very large investors who get together and make a plan to do something, it's a lot easier to prove than when you've got lots of little people who individually have no power and have to prove that they've made an agreement. So there was a, a while that the SEC was looking at uh, so-called hedge fund dinners where um, mm -hmm. people from hedge funds would get together and talk about their investment ideas. And the question was, is that some sort of either, are they a group under the securities laws or is there some sort of uh, agreement to trade in a certain way? And I think that, you know, as long as people are just talking honestly about what they liked about a stock and we're not coordinating their activity or planning in a way to do something to take advantage of others, that the SEC ultimately never did anything about that. Okay. Um, let me bring in uh, David Braille. David, what did you make of Randy Cohen's comment that this was really institutional versus institutional violence and not a story about retail? I'm very curious who the buyers were once the stock got above 150 or $200 a share, because at that price, obviously Reddit with individual investors having, you know, somewhat limited buying power, it's a lot different paying 150 than it is 15 or 20. Also, a lot of the Reddit buys were in the call options for, you know, a few cents a share. And once the fire was lit, I'm not certain that they could have provided enough firepower to sustain the rally from 100, 150 all the way to 500. A lot of that had to be dealers hedging the calls that got increasingly, you know, as the deltas went up. Um, but I do think there had to be some institutional you know, participation once they sense the short squeeze. I thought you would see evidence of that when hedge fund January numbers came out, but there weren't a lot of obvious winners that you could have maybe attributed to GameStop trading. Uh, so I'd like to find out, you know, what really went on in those days after the squeeze was well underway until it broke. And I think what broke it was that the shares, um, the shorts covered between 100 and 500, to the extent that the stock was once again widely borrowable. And once it became widely borrowable, I think a new cohort of short sellers came in and the thing collapsed under its own weight. But I am very curious 
about what Randy suggests. I think there has to be something to that, that it wasn't retail that ran it from 150 to 500. Julia, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I almost certainly there were, you know, momentum trader algorithms buying on the way up. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think that the, the power of that gamma squeeze is incredible. I mean, the balls that, that uh, were implied um, towards the end of that, uh, you know, before Robinhood uh, cut off the traders were orders of magnitude higher than, and than, you know, they'd been even two weeks before. I mean, you know, it's a little inside baseball here, but you're talking about, you know, 900% implied volatility for two weeks for options that are, you know, three times out of the money. I mean, I mean, these are just like, these are staggering numbers. So you've got, you know, the delta of these options where the stock would have to triple in two days or 30%. And there's tens of thousands of call options here. This is, this is, I, there's never been anything like this that I, I've ever seen, not even close. I mean, you're, you know, even like the crash in, in you know, 08, the, the pandemic crash in March, you know, balls were seriously elevated, but this, this was something um, even more pronounced. And because those deltas were all so high and there were so many contracts, there was a lot of, of what might be deemed institutional buying, but was really market makers uh, hedging. So I, I absolutely agree uh, that there would have been some, some other institutional buyers here playing the momentum trade, trying to exacerbate the short. Um, but the options thing is, is, is a, a, something new to look at and, uh, and get some numbers on if, if someone's doing the research on that. Julie, just to follow up, um, one of Randy's points about the value of retail order flow. Um, I think Randy's absolutely right that in general, when you know, the re- retail doesn't know what they're doing, uh, you, you have no problem selling to retail on the offer side of the market. Um, but in a situation like this with GameStop, where uh, if you do believe that retail was the, the prime motivator and you see the buy orders coming in like crazy, uh, what value is that um, to someone who owns the order flow that they, when they see these huge uh, uh, pushes in, in equity prices? Do they join the momentum? Do they fade it? You know, what do you think uh, that value is? How would you um, use it? Well, I, I think what happened w- would have been, you know, the, to the extent that this was, you know, human judgment and not just algorithms um, at, at any point, you know, at first you would have thought this is the opportunity of a lifetime to, to sell into the vol. And then, you know, two days later, you're, you're uh, running up against risk limits and having to cover at much higher prices. I think billions of dollars were lost um, by market makers uh, you know, um, along the way, and uh, and they were they were in, in, in forced to play defense and, and cover at higher prices, which sent the the balls to even more stratospheric levels. So, um, yeah. Randy, you make it an excellent. Yeah, please. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that, you know, on this whole issue of regulation, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow, but, you know, there was the question about what do we think is going to happen, and I think everybody should just understand that the new um, SEC chair who was, who was nominated by um, new president, has a, is Gary Gensler, is a very, very, very pro 
regulatory person. When he was the head of the CFTC, he implemented lots and lots of, of, of changes, and he's deaf to the argument that he hears from market makers and market participants all the time about how what they're going to do is ruin market liquidity. So I think that he is going to be more inclined to do to, to take action. But unfortunately, um, I don't think that they're going to focus on the things they really have to, which is relating to the time compression that everybody's been talking about. In a year where you have the stock market go down 30% of the pandemic and then up and then down in the time frames, things happen so quickly and we're still in a situation where we're settling things at T plus two and don't understand how we're dealing with the, the flow of information that makes things move well. And that's where I think the regulators should really be focusing. Marcy, just on that on T plus two. Imagine uh, you had real time settlement, um, but it's kind of confusing if you've already went out your shares and you got to call and get it back. How how do you think in the context of shorts and real time settlement? I mean, it's one thing for futures that could do that no problem because you can there's no need to borrow. Um, do you are you are you imagining a world where you would just settle it? And then we would worry about covering uh, the actual shares later and just give yourself a, a negative share amount. How, how do you deal with actually borrowing the shares and having fails, et cetera? Well, I mean, I think the same way you do as if it were the actual transaction. It's all book entry. It's all automatic. So I don't think it should be that difficult. I don't think real time, like every second, that you can be doing it. But I think you can do something overnight and, and have the money come in the next morning the way most institutional investors work with margin calls, et cetera. So I think you can certainly reduce it to several hours from, from you know, two days. I mean, remember, it's only like three or four years ago they reduced it from three days. So it's not it, – I think there's a lot of room for improvement in the system, and that would increase, um, you know, stability in the markets. Okay. Uh, Randy, I want to bring you in the conversation. What did you make of uh, David and Julio's comments about both the role of retail and the, the role of options market makers as being critical participants, uh, more so than maybe institutions that jump in to take advantage of the situation? So, uh, you know, as I said, I certainly don't deny that retail got things started. And I think the point about options market makers is, is a great one because, you know, one thing I don't know the answer to is if retail buys calls, now options market makers are going to buy stock to hedge those calls. Can, um, how transparent is it that, that, that those are fundamentally retail orders? And, and, um, and the excellent point uh, that I think it was Julia made that, that, uh, that those, um, those, those, those deltas grow over time. So even after, long after those call orders were placed, uh, the, the, the options market makers need to keep buying. I think that is a good point, right? And, and so there may be a response in prices to those because it looks like institutional order flow. Um, so absolutely, that stuff plays a role. Absolutely, the, the shorts covering, I mean, that's institutional buying, but it's a special kind, was, was a huge part of pushing the prices up. All I'm saying is I do think and again, I want to be very clear. I am not suggesting any um, collusion of any kind. The beauty of this situation was that there was no need for, let's say, hedge funds to collude, call each other, anything like that. Everybody knew what was going on. It was being written about in the newspapers every day. Everybody could see it on CNN. And, uh, and so the point is people knew, hey, if we buy, we're not going to be alone out there buying, and there's a good chance we can push this into short squeeze territory and really make a lot of money. Um, and, uh, yeah, it will be fascinating to see as the data comes out over the course of months and years, filings get done, to see, you know, who, who was holding this stock. Um, but I think we will find that um, a number of institutions made a lot of money trading this. Question for Larry Goodman on what he thinks regulation will look like. Um, clearly, there, as you said, 
at, there's Ted Cruz and Elizabeth Warren agreeing on a problem. Um, how do you think this, this will end up playing out in terms of regulation and taxation for this sort of behavior? Look, I think that uh, it's going to um, be hotly debated. I think that there will be um, a series of ongoing debates. I think Marcy made the comment um, about the change at the SEC, and you know we're certainly in an environment where there's a desire to roll back some of the rollback of Dodd-Frank. So we're certainly going to be seeing uh, a lot more discussion about regulation. Um, so the event on Thursday is going to be of special importance. Um, I do think it's important to take a step back and look at the plumbing. And the plumbing of the financial system in this period worked reasonably well. Obviously, there were dislinks and complications that were discussed and uh, a tremendous oddity, but the plumbing worked reasonably well. So I'm hopeful that any new regulation will be well thought out and deal with issues that can be um, can can be potential threats to systemic issues on a more sustained basis, um, rather than having a series of. Lynn, let me interrupt you just for a second and highlight two of them and get your opinion on. Uh, the first was, you know, these trades clear through DTC and uh, the DTC takes brokers' risk, and they decided in the middle of this to jack up. Uh, the margin requirements for trades that hadn't settled. Um, some people thought this was not transparent or not fair. Uh, do you think DTC acted legitimately and this effectively increases um, or reduces systemic risk is the first question. And second is, is that you know, Robinhood didn't have the capital and so um, it had to get a capital infusion from some of his friends uh, at a discount in order to continue doing business. Um, I, I, do you view that as good, that um, it's going to require greater capitalization of the brokers who want to engage in this kind of activity? Yeah, I, this, is a, this is an important issue, right? Um, it's important to look at how the centralized clearing agents are, are working. And there's, there's been a lot of work um, since the, the promulgation of Dodd-Frank in this area. And obviously, you know, a couple of things need to happen. The, the first is that with institutions such as Robinhood, um, they need to engage in better management of, of their capital uh, and literally calculate what kind of collateral they're going to need for varying levels of activity uh, in, in different securities. And secondarily, there's the obvious impact of jacking up um, collateral requirements at, at, at DTC that can have a knock-on impact on systemic risk more broadly. So I, this, is, this is an area that, that really there needs to be more work, but at the end of the day, one of the, the key solutions can be on um, T plus 2. Settlement should be T plus 0 or T plus 1, and certainly that would be uh, a big help. Um, Marcy brought up the uh, buying order flow uh, from customers as a way of compensating to make trades you know, free of charge. Um, it always seems rife with conflict, uh, even at the institutional level, 
uh, when we transact directly with dealers, there's no level of transparency. Um, so I guess I'm asking members of the panel, what do they think about uh, purchase of customer order flow? Should this be something that regulators look at to ban, or is this a necessary part of what makes brokers brokers? Uh, David, why don't I start with you on that and then go to Julio. I really think for retail, they're better off with zero commissions and having their orders sold. To the extent they're getting ripped off, they're getting ripped off for a penny or a penny and a half. The improvement that has resulted from payment and order flow is the tightening of spreads much tighter than we could have imagined 10 years ago. Used to be stocks traded an eighth of a dollar wide, 12 and a half cents. Then they went to nickels. Now most liquid stocks trade a couple pennies wide. So if a retail investor is getting ripped off, it's by such a tiny amount, it's much less than the commissions that they're paying, that I really think in aggregate they're better off, although obviously there are abuses and it needs to be policed. Julio, anything to add to that? No, I I agree with that. Okay. Randy, you talked about the value of price discovery from from the market and concerns about increase in volatility. Um, you know, we've looked in in the last couple of years, stock market volatility has been unbelievably low, with the exception of call it the March April period where it was uh, all time highs. Um, but away from experiences like COVID, um, volatility has been quite tame. And you know, although GameStop was unbelievably volatile in those last couple of weeks. Um, I don't think, you know, there is a link between the financial market and I'll call it the real economy. And I mean, given that this thing only lasted a couple of days, um, to what extent did the, I'll call it the bogus price discovery process of GameStop cause any real damage? Are a bunch of people going to start opening up retail, you know, video game shops based on this analysis? Or do you think everyone knew what was going on and it reflected something unique to the situation? Well, look, if, if, if nothing like this happens, uh, you know, in the next couple of years, then I think the impact will be muted. I think it will scare some people away from the market. On the other hand, it will probably draw some people in to get interested, as I was sort of, you know, joking earlier. Um, so so I, I think a, a one-off is, is not going to be a tragedy for the markets. I'm not alarmist about that. Um, you know, I think that what we have to recognize, and I think we've seen this in, in the media world, in politics, and in a lot of other places, is this, um, this ability for everybody to connect and to be heard and to communicate with each other at such rapid pace, um, it is something new. It's new and it's big. And it's going to have impacts that we don't expect. And maybe this will turn out to be one of them, where we start to have wild swings happening in various securities from time to time that cause markets to really seem generally more worrisome, or maybe not. Maybe this won't be one of the places that it pops up. Maybe it's going to have bigger impacts in other spheres. So I think that, you know, I'm sort of making the, uh, you know, the watchful waiting argument of saying, you know, this is something we do have to keep an eye on, but I'm not, I'm not alarmed by one event. I'm just saying, let's keep an eye because if this happens a lot, then you create a market that people are uncomfortable going into, and that is costly. David Braille, um, you run a long short hedge fund. Uh, one of the risks that we'd experienced in this Melvin Capital was if you have extraordinarily large shorts in any particular name, uh, you're betting the ranch, unfortunately, on a single on a single name. Do you think that for purposes of risk management going forward, long short hedge funds will be uh, much more attuned to minimizing both the size of any individual short and or uh, being extra more cognizant of being short a situation where there's a substantial uh, high short interest? 
Yes, I, I do think so. And I think that the use of put options in lieu of short stock will increase. But I think the biggest flaw in Melvin's strategy, they were a giant hedge fund. $13 billion is very, very large. They were shorting a company that had a market value of $500 million. The mismatch in size between the size of the hedge fund and what they were shorting required them to be short an enormous amount of stock. And when you're wrong on a short and it, and it doubles, now your position is twice as big and your risk is twice as big. And they just put themselves in an untenable position. Um, you know, they need to be shorting very large, very liquid stocks where they're just a small portion of the short interest. And I think that lesson will filter down to every hedge fund and how they construct a short exposure. Uh, Julio, something that Randy just mentioned, maybe the big story here is the power of social media to drive um, temporary stock price movement um, and the fact that we brought a whole new generation uh, of investors into this marketplace. What do you think of uh, the growing and longstanding impact of social media on stock investing? And is that the big story? Uh, I, I think it is. I think it is the big story out of all this. You know, you're, you're not going to put the toothpaste back in the tube on this. I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, what a powerful intersection of, you know, the, you know, gambling and greed and all these great things that, that uh, you know, a free commission app can sort of bring to the, to the forefront. People are, you know, the, the, the positive spin would be, you know, financial literacy, you know, got its biggest boost in the last two weeks, you know, that it may, may have ever had in terms of people like paying attention to the markets and learning about some of these sort of more arcane um, strategies and, and nuances of the stock market. Um, but a lot of people are going to lose money along the way, which is, you know, part and parcel with, with, with the education process. Um, and uh, I think people are going to just fine tune the strategies and learn how to, to use social media more and more, um, frequently and effectively, and, and it, I do think that it, this is like the arrival of a new cadre uh, of a power, powerful player on the investment scene, and I do think, you know, the ramifications for hedge funds, as David just said, are, are profound. Um, you know, I was talking to a, to a friend of mine who, who still manages institutional money, um, he said, I, I can't ever think about being short a single stock, really, of any size. And, you know, I can't, I can't go skiing for a day and come back. I, I could lose my firm just with any, any given stock. I mean, if you have Elon Musk out there tweeting, like, I like, I like Pepsi today, then, you know, there, there goes your whole whatever spread trade you had on if you were, if you were short that against something else. So it, it is, it is uh, it, it's profound, and I, and I think it, it, it'll be lasting. It'll morph. It'll change. It won't be Reddit anymore maybe, but, but uh, the, the genie's out of the bottle. And so can I just tie that into the point I was thinking, in other words, think about what those hedge fund managers are saying. They're saying, I can only do it a little, right? And David made that point, right? It only makes sense to do a little. But if you can only do a little, it's not worth doing the research, right? This is, uh, you know, famously, um, Sandy Grossman and Joseph Stiglitz did this, did this work. They, you know, you're only willing to spend as much on, you know, time, energy, money to learn information as you can make off that information in the markets. And so mm -hmm. if all hedge funds say, wait, I can't be short more than, you know, you know, half a percent of my fund because otherwise if it goes 50-fold, I'm out of business. You know, maybe they can only be a tenth of a percent of their fund. Well, now it's not worth doing the work 
But now you've basically pushed the short sellers out of the market, and I'm telling you that means not only less accurate prices, but also lower prices for everybody, and that's bad news. Question for Larry Goodman. Larry, um, as part of the Reddit uh, discussion groups, some of the uh, talk, the chatter was, you know, let's take it to the man. Let's, you know, really screw these uh, big, bad hedge funds. There was a, a significant demonization of the larger institutions on Wall Street as being the problem. Um, why do you think that gathered such support and acknowledgement by the little players that this was both a worthwhile function and that um, even if we lost money, we were going to teach the man a lesson? And doesn't it seem bizarre coming from, I'll call it, probably relatively rich kids playing with their dad's money in the stock market um, to, to feel that way? <laughs> yes, it's um, a multi-pronged issue, right? Um, there, there are a lot of different dimensions to it. You know, one is the social dimension. Um, we are experiencing um, great social strains in, in the country and in the rest of the world. So it's clear that these divisions are going to create a situation where um, varying folks, the little guy, wants to stick it to the man. Um, so it creates a situation where there is this demonization that is taking place. And, you know, the issue that I brought up about the monetary liquidity has, has literally created a Petri dish that's perfect for this experiment, right? Um, between March and the present, we've seen stock prices going up in a parabolic way. Um, and this has created a situation where, where there is this hubris, and there is this hubris for the little guy to try and stick it to the man. Um, what is interesting, though, in this, and this whole dimension to social media um, is actually very interesting because, in a way, it creates a, a greater democracy for the, the channeling of information. And, in fact, this, this fellow, Roaring Kitty, when you look at his initial video, he, he actually comes across as studying the issue, um, thinking about it almost from a Graham Dodd perspective where he's laying out his spreadsheet. So a big part of this is, yes, sticking it to the man. The de democratization of information is another part that uh, I think is actually beneficial from this, this change that I, too, believe uh, is, is a big part of the story, the role of social media in uh, markets. You know, I usually end this show with notes of optimism from each speaker, um, but I think I'd like to end this panel with a, just a quick comment of optimism from each each of the individual speakers, and maybe just because I want to get on to the next panel, if we could limit it to like 30 seconds, uh, and the, the, the question really is, is, what optimistic take can we learn from GameStop that will help us in the future? Um, and to that, let me start with David Braille and then work down the list. Uh, this has been mentioned, but I think it's important. Uh, a generation of new investors is being born with interest in the stock market that hopefully develops into, you know, a lifelong uh, interest in habit that leads them to create, you know, real wealth. Julia? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the uh, – that's the only silver lining I can find, too, <laughs> is, is uh, engagement and financial literacy. I think – you know, there's, there's probably a bunch of uh, dark clouds on the horizon and a whole other sets of, you know, efforts to manipulate the markets, you know, using, you know, you can just imagine some, you know, clever hedge fund guy now 
faking a huge shortage in a stock, but actually buying a, you know, a boatload of calls out of the money and just waiting for the, the Reddit threads to catch on to this supposed, you know, big short interest, even though it's non-economic at his point. I mean, there, there, this is going to be rife with second-order manipulations going forward. Nice optimism there, Julio. Okay, Lair, what do you got? That's all I got. That's all I got. <laughs> I just underscore this idea of new entrants to the market. Um, creating a, a more atomized market is a good thing. Um, and secondarily, I'm hopeful that uh, GameStop and Reddit is going to, to get education going and that the SEC and the CFPB create, um, via crowdsourcing, a new way of teaching, educa- teaching about financial markets in a fun way. Just as we've been speaking about the gamification of financial markets, maybe there's a way to gamify um, th- this education as well. So I'm optimistic that that will occur. Randy? Randy, it must be a um, Apologies. Uh, no, apologies. I, I, uh, I just took a moment to find the mute button. Um, I, uh, I would say the system showed, and I think Marcy kind of uh, alluded to this, um, showed pretty good resilience in this circumstance. Obviously, yes, Robinhood stopped trading for a little bit, but I think within a day or so, they were back online. Um, obviously, people made money, people lost money, uh, but, you know, this didn't, I, I, you know, even though obviously it was so micro covered that people would point to individual things and say, oh, this is terrible. I think overall uh, the system acquitted itself pretty well. I absolutely agree with good points by Larry Marcy and others that, that, that we can, uh, Julia, that, that this can be, the situation can be improved. Um, so by all means, let's, let's look for those opportunities to make uh, improvements. But, um, but I think we didn't do bad, all things considered. Mars? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I agree with what everybody else said, but I also think, like, the democratization of information is really going to help level the playing field for everybody in the markets. You know, you no longer need to have access to the Morgan Stanley Institutional Research or speaking to somebody, you know, at a big trading desk in order to understand, to know what's going on. And there are ways for um, people on these on these sites, the Reddit sub-sites, to ask questions and there's no culture of like asking stupid questions. You know, they're educating each other, and I, I do think it's a it's a good opportunity for the regulators to figure out how to put that kind of information into those forums instead of having them be in, you know, risk disclosure or account agreements that are 50 pages long that people scroll through without reading. So I think that that maybe will help. To, will you know will come through. Okay, that ends our GameStop panel. On to the next, which is our antitrust panel. Uh, we're going to start with uh, Fiona Scott Morton, who is the Theodore Nirenberg Professor of Economics at Yale. Go ahead, Fiona. Hi, everybody. Um, you asked uh, that I talk about antitrust and digital platforms. I'll just say for those who are very interested that Doug Melamed and I collaborated on a report for the Stigler Center at the University of Chicago on this topic in 2019, and that lays out a lot of details for those who are interested. Problems uh, that come up when you try to use the antitrust laws against digital platforms are that in the merger context, very often the um, potential comp- that the, the competitor is a, a potential competitor, a nascent competitor, that isn't fully grown yet, and there's uncertainty about the technological path forward, and that causes some issues in merger review. The problem is, uh, there are a number of problems, but I'll just highlight a couple with monopolization cases where the conduct might be difficult for 
the regulator or the authorities to understand um, clever use of interoperability, of lack of compatibility, of steering of um, of uh, volume and, and quantity that often in an online context is the same as quality or generates quality, um, use of exclusive contracts, all of these kinds of tools can be deployed to hamper rivals from growing or exclude rivals and uh, generate monopolization and market power. What does that market power do in terms of harm? Um, it harms consumers through primarily innovation and quality. We don't have a lot of monetary price uh, being paid for a lot of online services, although there are plenty of advertisers paying money prices for online services. Innovation would include the direction of innovation, its speed, what kind of business model is being used. Quality would be quality of content moderation, maybe the addictiveness of the content, maybe just its, uh, you know, the user interface. Um, the harms that accrue to consumers on the price dimension accrue through what you might call a barter transaction. And a lot of digital businesses I'm giving my attention and information about myself or data about myself in return for services. And uh, those transactions can be analyzed just like money transactions. In the sense, if I give you six apples and you give me six oranges in return, uh, and then tomorrow I say, well, I only give, give you one apple for the six oranges, then we understand that to be a price increase of apples. Uh, even though we're not using dollars, we can name it just the same. Um, and another really significant harm to consumers that comes from this anti-competitive conduct is lack of investment by the other side of the platform in a, that, that uh, creates the services that are the reason we're all on the internet to begin with. So maybe that's news, maybe that's the movie star database, maybe that's good photographs in the recipe site. But whoever's investing on the other side with the understanding that they're getting ad revenue or they're getting access to consumers, if they don't, if that money is taken by the digital platform, then that reduces their incentive to invest. So that's a very high-speed tour, and I think that uh, Doug Malamed will, will fill that out. Um, I'll just say that in fall of 2020, we had an unprecedented uh, uh, several months of antitrust cases being filed. Both the federal government, the DOJ, and the FTC, and groups of states filed cases against Google Search, against Google in ad tech, and in, against Facebook, monopolization cases. There are investigations underway at the agencies uh, into Amazon, where, by the way, I do some uh, antitrust consulting, and Apple. So this unprecedented burst of activity brought us kind of, I won't, I won't say catching us up to the Europeans, but they have a 10-year head start, and we certainly caught up to some degree. Um, I would say to the listeners on this call, however, that you probably don't think of antitrust the way experts do. I think most regular people think that antitrust laws mean the government is somehow going to control corporate power. And that's not anti antitrust is about if you've done a particular wrong thing, ex post, the government can come after you or private parties can come after you and, and try to try to redress the harm. I think what most people expect antitrust to do is what would really be the province of regulation as well as antitrust. That is to say, if firms are doing something that represents an exercise of market power and we just don't like it as a society, can we stop it? Well, perhaps not under the antitrust laws. Perhaps we have to pass a separate law to control that behavior, like the Federal Communications does 
uh, Communications Commission does for cable companies or the Department of Transportation does for airlines, although in my experience they don't do much that helps consumers with respect to airlines. But anyway, they're supposed to. So um, I think that an issue that we're going to see front and center is whether we're going to get regulation in the United States. Why do I think this? Because the first hearing in the Google search case is September 2023. Okay, then the judge has to write an opinion, then there will be an appeal, then there has to be another, the dealing with the appeal, and then the opinion there, and then maybe there would be a remedy after that. So we're not going to see any change in any of these markets for many, many years. And uh, that's going to frustrate people. Plus, we're going to be watching the Europeans who released a draft regula- regulation for digital platforms in December 2020, so just a month or so ago. They released that. And we're going to be watching that and thinking about that. And um, I believe that we might actually get regulation before we get resolution of any of these antitrust cases because they just take so long. And I think there's a coalition of frustrated consumers and small businesses that would like to regulate. So what form will that regulation take? I have no idea. It's very early days. Um, We can watch what's happening in Europe with their Digital Markets Act, which is quite comprehensive and quite um, aggressive um, to to sort of see how that starts to play out and try to figure out what's going to happen here at home. Uh, But meanwhile, that's all speculation, and we just have our uh, antitrust cases rolling out, which I'm happy to talk about as this program continues. I'll stop there. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Fiona. Uh, Josh Sovin, uh, my college roommate, partner at Wilson City. Go ahead, Josh. Thanks, Larry, very much. And I want to emphasize at the outset that I'm going to talk about what I think is going on, not what I think should necessarily going on. Um, I have a number of clients with conflicting interests on these topics. Uh, as Fiona said, in 2020, neither COVID nor politics slowed down antitrust enforcement. Instead, DOJ and the Federal Trade Commission picked up the pace. The agencies brought monopolization cases against Google and Facebook and challenged a number of other transactions involving actual and potential competition. So to pick up on the title of the program, you know, what happens next? Over the past 20 years, changes at the White House have not actually caused dramatic swings in antitrust policy. While the rhetoric has certainly varied, there has been constant political support for aggressive antitrust enforcement. It's actually an incredibly popular program. I worked at the Justice Department in the Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama administrations, and once you got past the party labels, I thought that their approaches to antitrust were pretty consistent. There have certainly been a few cases that might have come out differently depending on the administration, but to date, that's actually a pretty short list. This time might be different. The focus on large technology companies and a few government losses and high-profile cases has certainly generated interest in legislation and regulation that could make it easier for the government to win more cases. The intuition behind this legislation is that judges might be applying too high a standard, or more to the point that Fiona was talking about, that there are certain types of antitrust conduct and transactions that just aren't technically prohibited under the existing law. Senator Klobuchar has introduced a bill that would create presumptions that certain transactions are anti-competitive and shift the burden of proof to the parties, including any transaction where the value is greater than $5 billion and any transaction where the buyer has a market cap greater than $100 billion. There's about 100 companies in the U.S. which would trip that threshold. These presumptions and the burden shifting could alter enforcement and, litig- and litigation outcomes, but this is really not certain. 
This is because when the parties you know, persuade agencies or a judge, they usually end up taking on the burden anyway of showing that a transaction is unlikely to harm competition. When I take a client into DOJ or the FTC, I don't ask to see the government's case or tell them they have the burden of proof. Rather, I work to show the government that there's not a problem in the first place. The same is true for when I'm in court. I usually assume that I'm going to have to prove anything, everything anyway. The Klobuchar bill would also reduce the government's burden of proof for challenges to conduct by large companies that, quote, materially disadvantage one or more actual or potential competitors, unquote. You know, this, as Fiona was suggesting, is targeted at the technology companies we all know well. Um, I represent several of them. The idea is to make it harder for them to give preferences to their products over those of their competitors. The ranking Republican on the House Antitrust Subcommittee has said he, he supports this approach. Again, this could alter outcomes, but it's not clear that this would happen. It's simply not obvious that judges decide antitrust cases based on finely calibrated presumptions and assessments of the burden of proof. I think that most of them try to figure out who is actually right about what's going on in the market and then what will happen to consumers. As is often the case, what could matter the most is not law but cash. There appears to be bipartisan support for significant increases in the budgets of the Antitrust Division and the Federal Trade Commission. If the budgets go up, the government will absolutely bring more cases. It's inevitable. So what should companies do? The answer is that whatever happens with the legislation and perhaps with regulation, the fundamentals probably won't change. First, when companies show with real-world facts supported by real-world documents that they face a lot of competition, they have a good chance of persuading the government not to challenge their conduct and, if necessary, win in court. You know, if the Klobuchar bill passes, I just don't think the government's going to challenge every deal above $5 billion if there's no competitive harm. Such evidence tends to make presumptions, burdens of proof, and other legal obstacles less important. Second, investigation and trial strategies absolutely affect outcomes. I, I know it's not what everyone wants to hear, but antitrust is not a hard science. It's rough and tumble and fact-intensive, and it involves making predictions with highly imperfect information. Decisions about what evidence to present and when and how to present it can and do determine results. For example, testimony from fact witnesses can be more persuasive than complex econometric models. The models are simply too easy for the other side to break. In contrast, credible fact witnesses who the other side cannot cross-examine effectively often carry the day. I should note that in no sense am I you know, impugning or critiquing all of economic testimony. Um, if you've ever heard Fiona testify, you'd realize she's one of the best in the world and can be very persuasive. My point is that when you try to make this more complicated than it actually is, that tends not to work with judges. Also, in merger cases, strategies about timing can also matter a lot. The conventional wisdom that there are benefits from lengthy investigations is almost always wrong. Lawyers and consultants benefit from these long investigations, not the litigants. The party that best ex executes a strategy to move rapidly usually wins. If the government or the companies take forever to put their case together, bad outcomes often follow. Finally, in a world of information, imperfect information, maintaining credibility is essential. If a judge thinks that the government or a company is making it up, then the legal standards, whatever they are, probably won't help you and it's time to warm the bus. Thanks very much and I look forward to our discussion. Thanks, Josh. Our final speaker today, Doug Malamed. Uh, go ahead. So we live in a time of populism in which aggregations of economic and political power are perceived and feared. 
One result that seems rather clear is that antitrust enforcement will be more aggressive in the next few years than it has been for the past several years. There is, however, an important disagreement about what that will and ought to mean. It is a disagreement between what might be called progressives and populists. The progressives, like Fiona, accept the premise on which antitrust law has been based for at least the past 40 years or so, that antitrust law is about economic welfare, and in particular about prohibiting any competitive conduct that increases a firm's market power. The populists are more concerned about reducing inequality in wealth and political power. The progressives are motivated largely by case studies, court decisions, and economic data that suggest that antitrust law tilts too far towards defendants and have been under-enforced for the past 20 years or so. The bill introduced by Senator Klobuchar a week or so ago reflects the concerns of some of the progressives and seeks to correct the problem by legislation. Like the basic antitrust laws elected, uh, enacted in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Senator Klobuchar's bill focuses on prohibiting anti-competitive conduct. The progressives' concerns are disputed by antitrust conservatives, and Senator Klobuchar's bill will no doubt be roundly criticized by many. But there is plainly legitimate reason to discuss whether antitrust law should be recalibrated to better serve its objective of promoting economic welfare. In order to avoid false positives, antitrust law imposes on plaintiffs demanding proof requirements and includes legal shorthands and doctrinal rules that make it difficult to challenge mergers or anti-competitive conduct by dominant firms. The question is whether the law has gone too far in that direction. Most of the problematic rules have been made by judges in the common law-like way that antitrust law has evolved. The hard question for those who think the law needs to be reformed is whether reform is better coming through a judicial process aided by new enforcement initiatives by the antitrust agencies, such as the FTC's case against Facebook, or by new legislation. Relying on the courts will take a long time, especially given the conservatism of so many active judges and justices. New legislation will subject antitrust law to the often unprincipled compromises of the legislative process. While antitrust experts from both the right and the left could probably draft pretty good legislation, it's not clear that Congress can enact good legislation. One reason Congress might not do a good job on the legislative front is that much of the impetus for antitrust reform in Congress comes not from progressives, but from populists. The populists oversimplify better focused on inequality in economic and political power. They're concerned about large corporations taking actions that harm customers and suppliers or disadvantage smaller competitors, even if the conduct of those corporations would be regarded by economists as efficient or likely to increase economic welfare. The populist campaign and its seemingly broad political support are energized in part by concerns about the large tech platforms, in particular Facebook, Google, to a lesser extent Amazon, and more recently Twitter. These platforms are in many ways our most important communications media, and there's a long history in this country of aggressive and in some respects excessive antitrust enforcement against the then-dominant communications media starting with motion picture theaters and broadcast television networks, cable networks, and now the tech platforms. Even more than those earlier forms of communication, the tech platforms raise non-economic concerns about privacy, social disintermediation, and the censorship and dissemination of political misinformation. These non-economic concerns have aligned populists on the right, like Senator Hawley and Congressman Buck, with populists on the left. The tech platforms raise serious questions. Privacy law, Section 230, and other laws affecting content dissemination need to be reconsidered. The size-related advantages of the tech platforms, network effects, and scale and scope economies 
suggests that we might also consider targeted economic regulation directed at the platforms. But the broader efforts of the populace to change antitrust law, which are reflected most extensively in the House Antitrust Subcommittee reports last November, raise difficult questions that populists have not addressed. First, the populists ignore efficiency and economic welfare. They want to reform the antitrust laws in order to protect the weak and reduce the power of the strong, even at the expense of economic welfare. But they have not assessed the costs of their proposals, nor have they assessed the extent to which the more incremental reforms proposed by the progressives will address the populist concerns. Second, the populists want antitrust laws to be exclusively intended to further broad objectives such as equality, workers, a fair economy, and democratic ideals. These are worthy goals, but that does not mean that those objectives should be added to the goals of the antitrust laws. Experience teaches that laws with multiple and often conflicting objectives soon become incoherent and unpredictable, and they are more susceptible to regulatory capture than laws whose enforcement and judicial decisions can be assessed by less ambiguous metrics. So the big issue might be not whether antitrust law will change, but whether it will, will remain focused on prohibiting anti-competitive conduct in order to promote economic welfare. Doug, I'm going to start with my first question for you. Um, we had Chad Svearson from the University of Chicago uh, Business School on our program a few months ago, and what he highlighted was that um, the return on capital at large firms is uh, much higher than uh, for smaller firms, uh, and it's been uh, accelerating over the last 20 years, meaning that the large firms are just much more productive than small firms, uh, and that capital needs to go from small firms to larger firms within certain industries. Let's not talk about big tech for now, but let's focus in on just normal businesses. Do you see um, that, is that, I think that's what you mean by economic welfare. Do you see this transition of moving towards uh, larger firms taking over smaller firms as a means of generating efficiency in our economy and that holding back on that or making it more difficult is problematic? Well, I think as, as both Fiori uh, and Josh said, antitrust law is much more granular than the question you ask. I think the answer to your question is many acquisitions are efficient. They bring together complementary assets, whether they're human capital, uh, intellectual property, or tangible uh, assets, uh, and they can, they can create real efficiencies. But, but some transactions are not. And the task of antitrust law is to have um, uh, rules and procedures to identify those individual instances where firms engage in transactions that have no efficiency properties or very, very little, uh, but rather uh, threaten to nip in the bud competitive threats or to eliminate competition between firms that ought to be competing. So it really is, it really is microsurgery, uh, antitrust law. Um, and, and generalities, like big firms are more efficient. I mean, there are also generalities you can say they're less innovative. Um, and I don't think they, I mean, they're useful to understand that we don't want to go too far in one direction or the other. But I'm not sure they really answer the question of, of, of what should antitrust law be doing. And can I jump in here just for a second? Because the way you characterize Chad is not quite right, or rather maybe he said that, but I wouldn't characterize it that way. You said big firms are really profitable, and that shows that they're more productive and that money should flow to them. Well, there's an alternative hypothesis, which is that that big firm has market power. That doesn't mean it's productive. It means it's earned. so in a technical sense, yes, it's earning many dollars for each ad it shows, for example, 
But that's not real productivity. That's just dollars that come from the fact that it has market power. Should more money flow into that sector because it's so productive there? Well, a big puzzle that macroeconomists have been have been working on for the last few years is that while those big firms have lots of cash, and your, the theory you just articulated would suggest they should expand, they're not. Now, the macroeconomists spent some time working on that and came out with the idea, oh, maybe it's the same market power issue. That is to say, if I'm the monopolist, I don't want to expand. The whole point of being the monopolist is that I have market power here, and I don't want to be expanding output to the competitive level because then that would stop my ability to earn profit. So it, the, if you have a traditional productivity ex hat on and you and assume away market power, what Chad said is right, if you put your market power hat on, then it all makes sense. No, you're not going to expand, and no, this firm is not more productive. They're just higher priced. Fair enough. Let's uh, let's move to big tech for uh, for a second. Um, a number of these firms, um, Google and Search, for example, is doing it not through acquisition but by organic growth. Um, how do you feel and distinguish between organic behavior and acquisition? acquisition behavior as to what we want to achieve, which is a highly competitive marketplace. Fiona, why don't we start with you? Um, I think we, we really don't. Um, that is to say, we want a highly competitive marketplace because firms are competing on the merits with their products. And if they compete on the merits and they grow, that's great. And, uh, and if they merge with by buying up compliments and firms that aren't creating market power, that's great too. And the thing that the antitrust laws are trying to stop are two paths to monopoly that are bad, which is purchasing my rivals or firms that are about to be my rivals in an attempt to reduce competition that I might face, and that's how I become a monopolist, or taking the firms that are in the market and somehow excluding them using conduct that isn't about a better product or doing a better job, but is just trying to get rid of my rivals by changing my product design so that it's not compatible with them anymore and it drives away customers. Or some there's a, a really long list of conduct that falls in that bucket. But basically, bad acts that are not competition on the merits. And they're both they're both not serving the interests of consumers. They both harm competition, and we have two different laws for them, but that's just the law. Larry, Josh? Yeah, I mean, to sort of break it down into buckets, um, the law basically says, look, if you produce a fantastic product and you drive everyone out of business, you know, we're good with that. Um, if you're competing on the merits and you win just because your stuff is better, your price is lower, you innovate faster, that's it. And, you know, that does create some heartburn for, you know, people out there. But at least to date, that, that's been the rules of the road. And the thinking is, look, on balance, we're going to do much better, you know, if we let people go at it. And, you know, if they, you know, obtain market power for a while, then we're, we're good with that. On the acquisition side, you know, to pick up on the last comment and question, what's bugging people a bit is that, and I'm not commenting on the rightness or wrongness of this, is that every once in a while you'll see large company A, you know, buy small company B that has 50 super smart software, you know, engineers, a product and no profits. And then, okay, 10 years down the road, you know, we look back and go, well, maybe, you could envision a better world had that not happened. 
that that sort of that sort of acquisition at the moment is simply unchallengeable under the antitrust laws, because the probabilities are um, are too uncertain. You know, most judges would go, look, maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know. It seems like 50 things have to happen for me to conclude this is a problem. So no. And the debate that's part of the debate that's going on in the Klobuchar bill and otherwise is, you know, should we just go, look, we can't prove it. Um, we agree, you know, we don't have the documents, we don't have the data, we don't have the models, but we just think the risk of this is too great given the size of these companies, and therefore we're going to have a bright line rule and, and say no more. And, you know, that, that's a complicated question where, you know, you pull on one string, a bunch of other things are going to happen. But, but that's and let basically. me just point out that Josh just contradicted himself by saying, I can't prove it. And previously he told us the burden of proof didn't matter. So it really does. No. The burden of proof really does matter. No, I'm saying no. I'm saying that um, you could prove, Fiona, that look, you know, this deal isn't going to reduce competition because I'm acquiring something, you know, with 50 employees, no revenues, no product, and there's 100 other people doing it. So yeah, no, you can I, do that. I actually I disagree. There's a lot of uncertainty, and there's a risk either way. I don't think either side, given the burdens of proof that we have in antitrust yeah, today, yeah, let, let, let me jump can in prove here, anything. Let, let me jump in here. I think Fiona's completely right. Uncertainty is at the heart of the antitrust laws, because many antitrust questions involve uh, making some judgments about things that are unknowable, like future innovation, or unobservable, like marginal cost. So you're going to have uh, 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 uncertainty. In principle, there are three ways to deal with it. You could have rules that will say, for the most part, we're going to put the burden of uncertainty on the plaintiff by making it very hard for the plaintiff to justify government intervention into the market. And that's, to oversimplify a great deal, that's what antitrust law has been doing for the past 40 years. The other way you could go, which is what the Klobuchar bill seems to be going, and again, it's not a black and white, but certainly in that direction, is to say, wait a minute, we have a lot of data that suggests that merger efficiencies are, are, are not realized, at least as much as anticipated. The value uh, of mergers is not what, what maybe we thought. Uh, we also have data suggesting there have been some, a lot of anti-competitive mergers that have avoided antitrust scrutiny. So maybe we should put the burden of uncertainty uh, on the defendant by saying, if you fall into a particular category of a high-risk merger, you're going to lose the case. Your merger is going to be stopped unless you can somehow come up with, with proof that we shouldn't, shouldn't have to worry about. The third alternative is to do a case-by-case -case ad hoc approach. Now, one of the problems with current merger law is that law, although it's not set in these terms, it's a practical matter. A plaintiff wins a merger case only if it proves that harm to competition is more likely than not. So you take the so-called nascent acquisition, the, the Google buys a, a startup, and what if, what if we knew the following facts? What if we knew that there was a one chance in 10 that that startup, if left alone, would become the next big thing? And a, and a, and a nine chances in 10 that it would, it would fail. Uh, and there are some minor efficiencies uh, to Google to have its assets. A more likely than not standard would say, that's a, that's a lawful merger. But maybe you could look at it in terms of expected value and say on those facts, it's a bad bet to let that merger go through because the upsides, if we're wrong, are very small, and the downsides, uh, uh, if we're wrong, are huge. So it seems to me those are the three alternatives that the law faces, and they're very difficult because of the institutional context of making decisions under uncertainty. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, look, as a practical matter, what's the issue is whether you want to lower the threshold, perhaps dramatically, for saying we find the risk of large company A buying small company B unacceptable. That, that's what's really being debated here. Um, you know, should it be 50, should it be 30, should it be 10, should it be two? And there's different consequences which flow from where you set that bar. That's my point. I want to uh, just change subjects slightly. Um, the big antitrust breakup of my lifetime was the breaking up of AT&T into uh, its um, local phone companies, which later got merged again. Um, but it was an example of one company having, I'll call it, monopolistic power over an industry. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of if we decided to break up Google, for example, uh, maybe AT&T is the best example. Um, I'm just wondering what you guys think about the AT&T breakup, whether or not that uh, was a success. Um, Fiona, it sounded to me, I was thinking, the reason I bring up this example was it sort of reminded me uh, of how you opened your discussion with, it's going to take 10 years, it's going to be complicated, a bunch of appeals. Uh, I remember that case, Judge Green was analyzing AT&T for a decade, and the market really sort of moved over that time period between what was the original problem and what we ended up doing. Um, and I, went, I also wondered, kind of know, it, was that even a success or a failure at the end of the day, or did, maybe it didn't even matter? Um, so, Fiona, let me start with you. How do you think about the AT&T merger uh, as an example or as a, uh, of what will happen with Google? Well, I don't know the age distribution of this podcast. I will say that the AT&T breakup is a complete lodestar for anybody over the age of 55 or thereabouts. I'm just under. I, rem I was in high school when it happened, so it wasn't uh, as big a deal for me. And I think for anybody under the age of 55, they don't they don't see it. They don't they don't understand what happened. They don't understand what such a why it was such a big deal. And a lot of what made it such a big deal was the physical nature of it. There were wires. There, was, there were centers where the wires had to meet other wires. And who was going to pay for those centers? And how was interconnection going to be run? And what products were there? Because a shift from analog to digital was happening at the same time. And there was this long distance versus local loop. And the local loop was a legitimate natural monopoly. You didn't want 17 wires going to your house. So this, the issues in the AT&T case were, I think, maybe not so useful in terms of the parallels to today's digital platforms. Um, but you're right that in terms of its importance in the economy and it's touching everybody, it's probably the best analogy. And so that's why it's so popular even today with books, you know, Tim Wu's uh, books and other people really focusing in on on how great it was. Now, was it great? I think we'll never know the counterfactual. Lots of people think that Judge Green made lots of terrible decisions. Other people think that it was marvelous. So I don't, I don't, don't have an opinion on that. But maybe I'll ask Doug since uh, he might he lived well, through it a bit uh, more than I did. <laughs> although I'm uh, older than you and therefore uh, scarred by the AT&T experience, I don't claim any really deep expertise in the in history of that industry. But I do want to add a couple of thoughts. First. The AT&T decree was a remedy in a case brought challenging anti-competitive conduct. 
It wasn't just a decision by the government. Let's, let's break them up. Second, and, and, and maybe more important for this purpose, breaking up AT&T not only made conceptual sense economically because it, it, it disabled um, AT&T from uh, the breakup plus some regulatory requirements from disadvantaging competitors in long-distance service, um, which was the, the crux of the problem. Um, but it made sense as a business matter because the units that were separated uh, could readily be turned into efficient standalone business units. When you're dealing with something like uh, the Google search platform or the Facebook social network platform, it's not at all obvious to me that there is an efficient way of breaking them up um, or, or that even if you tried to break them up, they wouldn't tip back to a, a dominant uh, a network in those, in those lines of business in any event. So I really think that while the AT&T thing was on balance probably a real success, it was part of the story of the innovation in telecommunications. It's not a very good uh, uh, example or source of wisdom uh, with respect to the current uh, tech platforms. Let me uh, try a different example with Amazon. Um, I view Jeff Bezos' decision to have the Amazon marketplace on the same platform as his Amazon products to be just extraordinary. Um, his decision to allow any possible competitor to offer any good at a lower price and market it directly in competition with his own um, is something so extraordinarily out of the out of the ordinary with regard to how most corporations view and willingness to allow competition um, against their own products. Um, clearly, this is created one of the most dynamic uh, of retail platforms to ever exist. Um, I'm wondering, even though it has succeeded um, in allowing everyone to transact on the Amazon platform, uh, I still believe that Amazon is still considered the, the bad boy in the room. Um, is there anything Amazon could have done or should have done to make their platform more competitive? And do you see antitrust coming involved in this, or do you see more of a legislative solution if we want to curb Amazon's growing retail power? Fiona, can I start with you on that one? Fiona, you might be on mute. Yes, I was, sorry. Um, just remember, I do some consulting for Amazon, so I have a limited amount to say here. Okay. Um, but I will, I will say that the, the business of having a, a marketplace plus a retail operation in the same spot gets you network effects. That is to say, everybody can go to the same place to find what the retailer offers, which is not going to be all products, right? You're not going to have a retailer that says, I offer every product on the planet. Uh, and, 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 but, but at the same time, it's very convenient for a consumer to be able to go to that spot and see what other retailers on the planet have to offer because they're selling them through a marketplace that has the same interface. So there's a lot of consumer benefit to the marketplace idea because it's so scalable and um, everybody who's got something to sell can go there and that creates lots of long tail niche uh, products that, that creates the ability for those long tail niche products to sell to consumers like me. So I think that it's not as crazy an idea as you might 
think uh, up front. I mean, I, I sense your, your sort of disbelief. I have a store. Why am I inviting other people to, into my store? But yeah. I think part of the answer is I'm going to attract more consumers by doing that, and that's going to feed back into a positive yeah, yeah. Let, let me add something to that because I I, I, I do this with some trepidation because the only, of course, is the economist here. But what Amazon is doing doesn't surprise me at all. Grocery stores do it all the time when they have house brands selling against somebody else's brand. And the reason is that the big ticket item in terms of where, where Amazon gets its value and its profits is in its platform. So it wants to enhance the value of its platform by, by making it as valuable to consumers as possible, attracting more consumers, making more sales, and so on. It also gets involved in the product businesses. Now, in some situations where the, where the relative importance is different, uh, a platform might well say, well, I'm going to, dis I'm going to undermine the value of my platform uh, by excluding uh, rivals in the adjacent business so that I can make a fat profit in the adjacent business. But that would be true only where that profit in the adjacent business uh, is of more value to Amazon than uh, the lost value to its platform. Uh, so it seems to me that our Amazon, from what I know of the business, um, it's it's doing a perfectly rational, economically sensible, and efficient thing. I guess remember, I just go back to my wonderment sorry, just to, for just for a second. Mm -hmm. I, let me articulate my wonderment. So, if you went to a Walmart, um, you just wouldn't see someone from Target offering to sell a similar product or price in the store. That's what I find amazing. Um, you're right. I do. I'm not surprised um, when. A grocery store offers a house brand or Nestle uh, side by side and often at a slightly different price. But in this example, uh, Amazon often doesn't make the product. Um, they're, let's just make, simplify it. They're offering a book. They're offering a book for you know, $21. Um, and then someone else is offering the same new book for $16 uh, you know, with our shipping speeds, et cetera. But, um, that's what I find amazing. Yeah. So remember when they started, they were a different channel. It was like having a store in in France, and you wouldn't be surprised if the store in France uh, uh, had a mini store in America because there wasn't. They weren't otherwise on the ground in America. Their store was in France, so that was the brick and mortar versus the e-commerce. And if you didn't have your own e-commerce store, you could join Amazon's e-commerce store. I think that's one way to think about it. Also, keep in mind there's two different kinds of sellers on, on a platform like that. There's what you might call the brand owner, the, the people that actually do the manufacturing or conceive of the brand. And then there are resellers, which are more what you're talking about, another retailer that specializes in chocolates or something. And they're going to put their chocolate store onto an e-commerce site. And that's different than the brand owner of a particular kind of chocolate that's thinking, how do I get this to consumers? And maybe picks Amazon as one of many places it's going to sell through or the only place it's going to sell through. Well, it, it, Amazon sells a lot of products, in my experience as a consumer, that are also sold by the brand owner on its own uh, uh, website. Yeah, for sure. So it, does compete, it does compete in distribution as well as in product sales. Yeah, I, I totally agree. When I go to Amazon, if I could buy directly from the um, the producer, oftentimes they can't get it to me in my two-day period for free, and they uh, it, you can't use one click. You got to put your credit card information in. So there's other, I'll call it non uh, 
cash-related price determinations that result in the, in the decision-making process. Let me uh, go on to a, a new topic within antitrust. Uh, in Senator Klobuchar's bill, she also has a reference to creating like this group within the FTC to sort of do a post-mortem analysis. Was, in fact, competition hindered as if uh, we can learn uh, hist- history from the experience, sort of like evaluating Judge Green years later. Um, Josh, you, you worked at these organizations at the FTC. What uh, do you think, what would be the value of having that historical exercise of competition within industry to reevaluate uh, previous decisions? Is this good learning that would be helpful? Uh, does government do this well? Uh, will it be used properly? What are your thoughts of having the FTC do a postmortems? Right. No, it's a great question. Um, retrospectives, as they're called in the trade, are sort of the catnip of the antitrust agencies at times. They're, they're very appealing. I mean, properly targeted in certain industries, um, they can produce learning. And certainly what I think the government has done in a few cases, the hospital sector being one of them, is they went back and looked at some cases and figured out a better way to litigate cases and turned a losing streak into a winning streak. The challenge of them is twofold. One, they suck up enormous amounts of resources and sometimes those are better spent on forward-looking matters rather than, you know, going back. And two, just the, you know, the number of variables you often have to sort through in order to come out, you know, with a result which you can have some confidence in is often just daunting. That, you know, the, more, the longer back you're going, you know, the more permutations and the more branches on the decision tree. So the answer is, you know, it can work, you know, in in a finite number of circumstances, but across the board, they're tough. Um, I have a I'm sorry, an eccentric concern about the proposal, and that is I'm not sure it's a good idea to have this body housed in the FTC, maybe a third, maybe GAO or something like that outside the agencies, especially insofar as you're talking about reviewing DOJ's work because there's frictions enough as it is between the agencies. And I'm concerned that there will be complicated um, uh, interests in either downplaying or exaggerating criticisms of the other agency. Uh, Excellent point. I guess my one last question before I go to optimism. Uh, one of the big losses in the antitrust department during the Trump administration was the, uh, the Time Warner merger with AT&T, uh, particularly uh, a hor- I'll call it a horizontal merger that the uh, antitrust department decided to challenge and then ultimately failed. Um, I'm just wondering from the various speakers what they, may- what they thought about that. Um, and whether or not legislation would help them prevent horizontal mergers, or is that something that the government shouldn't be involved in? Fiona, can I start with you on that one? Yeah, the AT&T Time Warner merger was a vertical merger, and those are inherently more difficult because there's two levels of analysis. You've got an input uh, supplier merging with something downstream, and ultimately, when we worry about competition, we worry about horizontal competition. So somehow that vertical link is affecting horizontal competition, and you have to trace that out. And there's many variations of how that might happen or not happen, and so that causes those cases to be just more complex. And when the burden is on the plaintiff to show that there's harm, once again that then just becomes harder to do in court because you've got something complex and a general interest judge who might be a bit bored and uh, you know it doesn't go well for the government. 
So I think that reorienting courts to what the dangers are in vertical mergers, that they are um, a viable kind of merger that we should be worried about and that the burden, recalibrating this burden so that you say to a court, look, if there's an appreciable risk of, of harm here, we don't want this merger to go forward. So we, it's not that we need to trace out every exact thing that's going to happen in the future and nail it down. We have to show that there's a, a substantial enough risk that consumers don't want to go there. Um, so that's what I would hope that legislation would do. Uh, Josh or Doug, anyone on that one? Yeah, sure. And, you know, look, the people who brought that case are all friends of mine. Um, I admire and respect them a lot, and they worked really hard. Uh, no surprise at all in the outcome. Uh, as Fiona's suggesting, I mean, that case involved 22% of distribution in the form of DirecTV buying 12% of content in the form of Time Warner with no evidence that prices were going to go up to consumers. I don't think Judge Leon was bored. I think that's what he picked up on. Under the existing law, the government's going to lose that case. And so the fact that they lost was not a surprise at all. I think the right, government's let's... theory in that case was a sound theory. I think the courts agreed with that. Uh, they lost on the facts. The record was not good for the government. Uh, maybe it was just bad facts. Maybe uh, bad lawyering. I doubt that. Uh, or maybe antitrust law in some ways has gotten too complicated and we need to figure out ways to simplify it. You know, I think it's interesting. I, I, it doesn't appear that the acquisition has resulted in tremendous uh, opportunities for AT&T. And it's, um, there's been rumors recently that uh, Warner will be sold um, potentially to one of its horizontal competitors so that they can uh, get their value from it. In any case, well, uh, let's, let's, let's point out let's point out that the the CEO of AT&T said that he wanted HBO to be distributed widely. That was his only goal. And then uh, proceeded to we proceed to see anyway that HBO is not uh, sold to Sling TV anymore. Sling TV being a competitor of AT&T, and that was a major way that that uh, people were that was a major reason people were signing up for Slings because they could get HBO that way. So the foreclosure that the government predicted, namely important content assets being withheld from competitors of AT&T, happened immediately, even before the appeal. Okay. Um, I want to end my antitrust panel with notes of optimism. Uh, let me start with you, Fiona. What are you optimistic about as it relates to the issue of antitrust? Um, I'm optimistic about progress happening because we have an unusual coalition of consumers and small businesses that are actually both interested in antitrust enforcement. And by small businesses, I mean everything not everything below the top 10 largest companies in America. So, you know, American Airlines and IBM fall into small businesses in my framework. And I think they all want to constrain the uh, power of the largest platforms. So I think there will be movement. Josh? Thanks, Larry. So at a time of just hyper-political partisanship and polarization, as I said at the outset, this is one of the areas where I see actually relatively little of that, that across the political spectrum, left, right, and center, I think people are thinking about antitrust in a way that's straight up and on the merits, and that's the best way to produce positive outcomes. Doug? Orthodox antitrust notions that seemed fresh and important 40 or so years ago are undergoing a long overdue reassessment.
Okay. Distinct as usual. Uh, that, yeah. Uh, with that, that ends uh, today's session. I want to give a quick plug uh, for next week. Um, we're going to have John Kay, whose book is Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making Beyond the Numbers, that he co-authored with uh, the Honorable uh, Lord Mervyn King. Uh, we're also going to have Peter Tiemann, an economic historian at MIT, uh, discuss his new book on the history of segregation. Uh, we'll have Brown literature professor Arnold Weinstein discuss Huckleberry Finn and why it remains controversial, as well as Don Hirsch, uh, the, the education specialist who uh, supports cultural literacy. All right, with that, that ends today's session. I'd like to thank our speakers for their time and their ideas, and I'd also like to thank our listeners for paying attention as usual. And with that, uh, thank you so much, and that ends today's session. Have a great day. Goodbye. You may hang up now. <laughs>